Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a board game podcast, and we're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the board games we played this week. We're going to talk about the board game we reviewed exactly a year ago. We're going to talk about some board game news, and then we're going to talk about ending board games. (laughs) The end of all board games. I am Mark Bigney. I'm your co-host with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastical. So we are going to talk about the game reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus, and this week it is Cryo by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie, published by Z-Man Games. Walker, your, your more matured, cold take on Cryo. Fantastic See what I did there? Game. Cold? Yeah, cold. It, this is this is cryo, professional level yeah, wordplay like, going on right here. They're and in cryo sleep. It's cold. It's cold. And it's a cold take. It's a cold take. It's a take on cold. Wow. Two levels. Deep, you were saying. Deep. So you are using these sort of hovercraft type things to go out and perform actions, and then you get to customize these actions. And then you get to choose when you're going to pull back. <coughs> Sorry. You get to choose when you pull back these... Uh, hover ships and then that's what triggers your comboed actions we have played cryo a number of times since we reviewed it to me it's a solid uh, b plus a minus worker placement game not one of the absolute best but very approachable and uh, certainly more directly competitive and simple than a lot of other recent worker placement games and we kept comparing Cryo to Dwellings of Eldervale when we talked about that latter game, in part because Cryo was t- co-designed by Luke Laurie, the designer of Dwellings, Dwellings of Eldervale. And, and I also really liked how the promise of customization and timing considerations of Dwellings was actually made manifest in a more compelling way, as far as I was concerned, in Cryo. It's a bit of a divisive take. Some people don't really like Cryo, but look, it's got area majority. It's got multi-use cards. Multi-use cards. A little bit of teeth to it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Cryo. I pull out at it, pull it out every once and again, and it's one of those Euro games. It's not quite. It's definitely not the level of say an Archeo Society or an Ethnos in terms of any crowd will take to this. But if when I am thinking about how to approach my resp- occasional responsibilities as game daddy, I would far sooner involve something like Cryo than even something like, say, Agricola, uh, in terms of being able to accommodate lots of different types of, of gamer tastes. So I'm a, I, Cryo is still in my collection. I'm glad it's still there. And uh, I, I've had time to think about it and play it since we reviewed it. And that is the game we played exactly and reviewed one year ago. Now, onto the games we played this week. Mark, let's get this one out of the way. <laughs> do we have to? We do. Okay. The Witcher, The Old World, designed by Lukas Wozniak. Put out by Project Red, CD Project Red. And this is what we would call an old school adventure game. It really brought me back to Talisman and more directly uh, RuneScape. Uh, For me, my seminal sort of wandering around an overland map, eventually killing a boss game was Prophecy by Vlada Kvotl, which was a slightly more Euro-y take on Talisman, but still very much in the same vein. Yeah, because it was funny because I had to look in the RuneScape rulebook because in Witcher you get trophies, and I could have sworn I remembered that, and then sure enough, it's exactly, because I thought it was weird. It's like, you get trophies? What does that even mean? And it's exactly the same word they used in RuneScape. Was well, in, okay, so trophies. so this is an adapted property. 
from both both a series of novels and a video game and now a Netflix series, having played about five hot seconds of one of the video games, specifically the second, I can tell you that trophies are a big deal amongst Witchers. Ah, gotcha. Now, just in terms of full disclosure, again, I don't have a whole lot of experience with the universe. Some of the storytelling is okay. Some of and, and I know some people who really, really love the universe and love the writing and everything. But I have to tell you that the actual character of you know the most famous Witcher. This is the old world. This is centuries before the the titular Witcher of all the other stories. The witchiest Witcher. Well, the witchest, yes. And <laughs> Geralt of Rivia who's the, the main the main character, formerly played by Superman, now to be played by Thor's younger brother, is, to my, I can't take this, this, the, the property seriously because of the extent to which I associate that character as a 12-year-old power fantasy. It's, every time I see that character, whether represented in real life or described on the page or presented in a video game, I immediately think of some 12-year-old... I just... It, it's just... It's absurd. I just can't take it seriously. And for what it's worth... The universe of the Witcher Old World is uniformly male and aggressively white. And that also makes me difficult to take. Like, even people who really... I, I know some people who swear up and down that Witcher 3 is one of the best video games ever. And they're like, shame it's so white. <laughs> like, it's just... It's it's one of those traditional sort of mythological pseudo-medieval Europe that that completely erases all the people of color that actually existed historically, even setting that aside as merely an excuse, because when you're creating a fantasy realm walker, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And if you think representation matters, you can find a way to do it. And if you think representation doesn't matter, you end up with the Witcher. Anyway, so I came into the board game not ready to appreciate the grandeur of the setting necessarily. So that was one strike against it. And it feels, for those who have played Lords of Hellas, you'll get a very good taste of what is like. If you just pull out the monster hunting aspect of Lords of Hellas, you'll get The Witcher. You have this. Yeah, and ditch all, ditch all the other bits. Yeah, yeah everything yeah, else. This, yeah. You literally have like a painful sort of movement system, and then you encounter the monster, and then you have, you know, you've collected cards, and you try to create these combos with the cards, and then you have to make sure you do enough wounds, or else you have to start all over again, and painful <laughs> in all aspects. Extreme downtime. Uh, randomness all over the place that's not really mitigatable. Narrative that is presented through these st stochastic, pointillistic, unconnected bits of nonsense that may shower you with wealth or send you down a weird rabbit hole. Not particularly compelling flavor text and uh, not a whole lot of player interaction. Yes, helping the, the mayor's son gets you two coins, whereas helping <laughs> the old lady that lives in the dirt hut gets you three. These are the, the, the things that make sense in The Witcher. So part of me was thinking while I was playing The Witcher of the Old World, this was probably right around hour one of three. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, the combat system seems like there's something there. And there is, but the problem is it's one of those instances where the combat system in The Witcher Old World completely plays itself. It's parasitic on decisions that you actually made in terms of deck construction. At the end of every turn, you add a new card to your deck. But the costs of getting a, an expensive card are real high. And your ability to tailor your deck 
is is kind of attenuated by the fact that you have to vaguely remember what colors predominate, and even then, you need to draw the right colors at the right time in order to make the combos work. But then when you're actually fighting, the combos play themselves. I, I was never in a position where I was seriously uncertain as to which cards to play during combat. And as a consequence, it actually felt less compelling than the hunting element of Lords of Hellas. Now, I think your characterization is exactly right. Take the least compelling, most downtime-ridden element of an otherwise uneven but enjoyable game, namely Lords of Hellas, blow it up into the entire game. I think that's just really giving too much credit to the Witcher Old World. Because when monster hunting, I actually have some choices. Do I want to save the shield for later? Do I want to burn these cards to block the wound and just take it in the face and then use these cards for symbols later or not? The Witcher, Old World, never had that problem. Ever, ever, ever at all. Now, I say that it took us three hours. More on that later. We didn't actually finish. It was going to finish on someone else's next turn. So it was just—it was purely random as to who's going to win. Were they going to pull the cards they needed or not? Uh, probably they would have. But also, the I, I'm willing to give the devil its due. The time for a, a play of The Witcher Old World would go down considerably because it is such a throwback to those classic Overland Adventure games because one of the staples of your Overland Adventure games like that is you wander around until you think you're strong enough. And in your first couple of plays, you have no idea what strong enough looks like. So you go around, you try some stuff, and then you're nearby to the monster. I guess I'll go fight. The oh, that was really too easy. Oh, well, I guess I should have done this five turns ago. Chalk it up to inexperience, but it doesn't lead to smooth gameplay. And uh, oh, the rulebook recommends very strongly that your first play should be solo or two or three player. They are not lying. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it might not be a bad experience uh, solo. If you are familiar with the IP and you enjoy that world, then playing this game solo might be interesting. Yeah, possibly. Other than that, I would not touch it again. I am very thankful that the market has moved on from these kinds of adventure games. Instead, what we have, and this isn't because I think, you know, combat is the be-all and end-all of gaming. Look, I'm not, I, I'm the guy who doesn't play D&D because it's too focused on combat. But again, if you're going to gamify it in a board game context, I would infinitely rather play something like Too Many Bones or Street Masters or things of that ilk, where the flavor emerges organically from all the cool asymmetric characters you're playing, all the weird abilities. You have a little bit of whimsical writing in the context of Too Many Bones, but not a whole heck of a lot. You're not overburdened with an event card every turn. And then you have an interesting substantive combat system with decisions and trade-offs. That's the way I want it to happen. Rather than an overland adventure where I get these, again, random disconnected bits of, of encounters where, uh, okay, well, uh, I was able to cure this guy without spending any potions. This other guy failed to cure and I lose all my potions. Whatever, I guess that happened. And where travel is very, very expensive. I'm going to think it's Elfinland and Elfin Roads, right? If you want to do travel, do a game about travel, right? I just don't think that this whole sort of travel plus combat meshes particularly well. I haven't seen it done well, at least. Agreed. All the pain. Like, if, if you're not holding everyone up with a combat round, you're holding everyone up by every, at the end of every round, you have to draw an event card. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> and that was The Witcher Old World by Lucas Wozniak and Seed Project Red and Go On Board. Let me finish up with another one that we just didn't finish. We'll get those two out of the way. This is a game I talked about a while ago. It was a Kickstarter game. It was called My Father's Work. And this is a, have, a heavily reliant app-driven game. You are 
playing three generations of a family of mad scientists in a way, and you're creating all these crazy... Misunderstood geniuses, Walker. Let's not be exclusionary. So so you're creating all these different uh, uh, projects and or experiments, and then you get to sort of pass down a little bit of knowledge every time, and you're just trying to create this sort of, you know, point-generating system. And then the app takes care of everything about the worker placement areas. It's like, do you want to build a church? And then tell you what page to turn to. There's a little action book that you sit in the middle of the table that gives you action spaces. You have action spaces on your board. You mean instead of having to grave rob, you can just build the church and get source it directly? Pretty well. It's kind of like farm to table, but not. (laughs) Different kind of table, different kind of farm? Exactly. Well, that's clever. Vertical integration. So we got through the first generation, Mark. Yep. And then it wanted to know a number because the sort of the overall objective was to donate money to the church. Okay. And then they would give you so many, uh, so many tokens and, and we all had our own little mini objectives that also gave us tokens. Whoever had the most tokens would get, uh, five victory points. But then when the generation ended, it wanted to know the total amount of, of hearts that we had all collected. So it was obviously going to manipulate something about the game, depending on how many overall hearts and no matter what we put in, it would crash the app. (laughs) So then we reloaded, but then it would just bring us back to the same input data screen. And no matter what we did crash. Yep. And we had computer people there. So we tried all sorts of weird stuff. So nothing would work. And so game end turn one of three. Yep. It's, (laughs) it reminds me of some of my experiences playing the Artemis starship bridge simulator which I very much enjoyed, you know, old old school land style game. Got some very, very clever design elements. I haven't played it for years because the rate of, of crashing, in the, in the case of Artemis, it's even worse because you network together five machines. If one of the instances crash, the entire game is scuppered. In the con- I had never encountered this in a board app-driven board game experience before, but quite frankly, I'm not surprised. It, in hindsight, it seems the kind of thing that's inevitable. We could have sort of like pull out a phone and quickly advanced us through to that point, but we just oh, sort of... that's so tedious. Exactly. We I've lost. done it before in Chronicles of Khan, the upcoming Gordon Kalea game. I would do it for Gordon Kalea. I would not do it for anyone else. So my father's work was designed by T.C. Petty III and put out by Renegade Game Studios. Do you know what T.C. stands for in T.C. Petty? Terminal Crash. Terminal Crash. Just so. <laughs> that's it a shame. Was, it was, that's pretty petty, Mark. <laughs> Remember, we are ineligible for the Golden Geek. <laughs> <laughs> I get to play City of the Great Machine. I've been wanting to try City of the Great Machine for a while. A number of people have been talking about it, including our listeners who wanted us to discuss it. And unlike the listeners who wanted us to discuss the, the Witcher Old World, I did not get a sense that they were trying to punk me with some sort of hazing ritual or some sort of weird cabalistic torture. City of the Great Machine is kind of, sort of, a hidden movement game, uh, a la... Fury of Dracula or Scotland Yard or what have you, but done in a different way. So everybody picks where they're going to go, and it's an all-V1 game. And then the great machine, played by somebody else, can send out agents and possibly attempt to catch them in the location where they're going to move. But layered on top of this, 
is a whole bunch of interesting actions. Like the goal isn't to avoid capture or get ca get caught. That merely informs the other victory conditions. The actual victory conditions consist in the great machine trying to succeed in a number of challenges before the end of the game. And if you, the great machine catches you, they can basically count that as a successful challenge or as a number of other things. And the agents are attempting to start riots. This is very, very much uh, raging against the great machine, if, if, you have, uh, if, if you get the subtle reference. And there's this dystopian steampunk government, and you're, you're trying to get the populace to rise up. What's interesting is that there are all these hidden citizens that are seated on the board at the start of the game, and citizens will only be potentially active, i.e. participate in things like riots, once the discontent has gone up to a certain level. So there is a very strong burden on the part of the agents who are fighting the Great Machine to figure out who these citizens are and then activate them and then trigger them in an appropriate way. And all of this is layered on top of a currency system that makes some actions much more expensive based on how many guards there are. It, it, it sounds a little intricate, but it's not overly cumbersome. It's just a way to subtly influence the economy cost of various actions. The most salient and obvious of which is movement. In order to leave a district, it costs as many points of currency as there are guards there. So one of the things that the Great Machine can do is like, oh, there are a couple of people in this district. I'll just put in a whole bunch of guards there so it's expensive for them to leave. And then maybe they won't leave and then maybe I'll catch them. Or maybe I suspect they're going to go over here because the event this round says that they should, etc, etc, etc. So there's a fair amount of opportunity for doublethink. It's a strange game, but strange in a very appealing way. City of the Great Machine has uh, definitely struck me with its approach to, again, hidden movement and asymmetric victory conditions. And in terms of 1v-all gameplay, it's certainly more different than a lot of the other 1v-all experiences. You know, it does. you don't feel like a dungeon master when you're playing as the Great Machine. It doesn't look like, I didn't play as the Great Machine. I'm looking forward to trying it. But it certainly seems as though you're given your own tangible objectives that are, number one, independent from just punch the agents in the face as hard as you can. And number two, it certainly doesn't look like you're there just to make the game work. Yeah, could, could you almost define it as not a 1v-all game? More like a, you know, how, uh, what was that sort of dungeon game called? What was it, Vast? Remember how vast they had someone, you know, oh, sure. dungeon, you know what I mean? So could could the other player, could it just be another type of player? Uh, well, there is a solo mode that automates the the Great Machine. So I don't know. It 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 is definitely the case that when playing two-player, it may feel more like that. One great knock against the City of Great Machine is that it is a fixed player count game. You play with four players, that means three agents against the Great Machine. If you play with three players, guess what? A couple of people have to share an agent because there's always going to be three agents in play. But you're right. It definitely feels more like uh, a sort of heavily asymmetric game experience than your more traditional sort of Descent First Edition or even Level 7 Omega Protocol kind of thing where, you know, it's the responsibility of... of... No one would mistake the Great Machine Player for a Game Master, essentially. And that I, that is a compliment for me because I don't like it when there's a, a game uh, a structure whereby one of the players wonders if it is their responsibility merely to make sure that other people get to have fun. Yeah. So I I very much enjoyed the way the asymmetry was internalized. I have no conception of balance whatsoever. Again, it's it just one data point. I'm not in a position to speculate. And it was uh, a very interesting notion of ramping up. I will say, though, that in terms of uh, thematic realization, I have the exact same criticism of the City of the Great Machine that I do of Robotech Reconstruction. The revolutionaries are involved in a steady, almost inexorable march towards success. 
they don't really have to capitalize on strange moments. It doesn't feel like they're involved in lightning strikes in a reaction to brief moments of government oversights. Instead, discontent mostly marches inexorably upward. You activate more and more citizens. They get more and more discontent. And that's fine. It just leads to sort of inevitability, uh, a, perhaps a false sense of inevitability when the great machine wins, but it doesn't feel right as far as I'm concerned. You know, The government, if anything, should be the more staid, stolid, playing for time as opposed to the revolutionaries. And that, that's how I felt about Robert Reconstruction. And that's kind of how I'm feeling right now about City of the Great Machine, though that could change, especially once I end up feeling as the City of the Great Machine. But I'm eager to try it again. I know that you're keen to give it a try. And I'd, uh, I'd happily teach a future occasion. So that's City of the Great Machine, designed by German Tikamurov and published by Crowd Games. We got Gang of Dice, designed by Ryan Arkinitsi and put out by Mandu Games to the table again. And like you said last time, it really, the player order is really pronounced in the game. But the fact that it, I think it shifts around so much, I think maybe we'll balance that out. I still really One enjoyed playing, playing it again. And I'm going to keep it for a little bit while. What would you think of this yet another plane of Gang of Dice? Yeah, so it's a push-your-luck game where you basically are encouraged to make bigger and bigger boasts about how you're able to accomplish various dice-related tasks. And very frequently, I was in a position where I just didn't feel like I could realistically make a play for victory. If you're first, you're operating under a blank slate, and you get to try to set the stakes if you're last, you know what's going on, and frequently you're in a position, therefore, to take a big risk. Or it's so clear that you're never going to win, so you may as well just p pitch in a single die and be done with it. Or everyone's busted and you just throw, you know, throw X dice and you automatically win. Exactly. And then there's everyone in between. The people in between more often have a shot at doing that, but frequently what we have was we played with somebody who, for whatever reason, frequently would just try something absurd, succeed on it in a single roll, and set a bar that was so high that it would have been foolishness to even try to challenge them. Because, you know, it's one of those rich-get-richer problems of push-your-luck games, and Gang of Dice is no exception. If you make the perfect roll, and other people bust trying to beat your perfect roll, you just profit from it because you scoop up all the dice they used foolishly trying to, trying to contend with you. So the smart move is... Sometimes, I think, just to toss in a single die and be done with it and call it a day. Yeah, I enjoy it. Look, Reiner Knizia dice games tend to have at least a good appreciation of odds and, and how numbers work together. I don't think it's a particularly competitive Knizia push-your-luck game. I would I would probably put it below Llama Dice, and Llama Dice itself is verging on the great activity versus game axis that some people like to use to say, well, it's not really a game, it's more of an activity. Llama Dice is already a little closer to the activity spectrum than I'd like, but... Gang of Dice is a perfectly pleasant opportunity to, you know, roll dice. Rolling dice is fun, and seeing results is is neat. But it's it's not my favorite of that type, but it's one I'll happily play. And that is Gang of Dice. You also get to play Tinderblocks. Tinderblocks is this delightfully twee little tin, the kind of tin you could use to store a fifteen millimeter print of Demonship. And you're expected to stack blocks using, as you say, deliberately bad tweezers. I don't know if they were deliberately bad or just. Delight fortuitously bad. Delightfully bad? <laughs> well, they're definitely delightfully bad. I don't know, but it was deliberately delightfully bad or fortuitously delightfully bad. And you're you end up with something that actually kind of looks like a campfire. It's not, I mean, it's 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 so cute. <laughs> and so it's not gonna like like a lot of stacking games, the victor conditions are a little off. 
but I, I, you know, I'd have to say I'm never going to object to a an instance of Tinder blocks, and they've done a lot with a very small amount. So good for them. Yeah, you open up the box, and you can pretty well just get people playing like we did. You flip over a card, it'll tell you either to use your off hand or your main hand. It'll tell you in what order. So you grab your tin and you prepare your pieces. Yep. And you Set your little prep area, and, 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 and then you, and then you bring it into the play area. I have two cubes, but I'm gonna have a prep area for my two cubes. <laughs> it's delightful. <laughs> it is. And that is Tinder Blocks by Rob Sparks and published by Alley Cat Games. I just kind of know Sparks. His name is Sparks. It's, it's, about, it's about making a fire. I know. Well, it's delightful. It is. Played another game of Cat in the Box Deluxe Edition. We played one game on stream shortly after it was released, and we haven't gone back to it uh, since. Not not out of any sort of spite or anything, but uh, we've, you know, there have been a number of delightful trick-taking games that we've been playing, and a lot of them are, have such great gimmicks, and so being able to swap back and forth between a lot of these very, very... I, I, I say gimmick as high praise here, right? Just reinventions of the fundamental trick-taking genre. And the, the hook of Cat in the Box is it's nominally themed around quantum observation, but the idea is, is that all the cards are black, but when you play them, you stipulate what color the card is. But you can't play a card in which you've declared yourself to be void because you just stipulate that you're void in a given color, and you can't play a card that's already been played. And functionally, speaking as a very conservative individual, there's the way to get points, which is by scoring lots of tricks and making your bid and arranging patterns and doing other kind of... No, no, no. For me, the goal is to avoid busting. <laughs> you bust if you're in a position where you literally cannot play any cards. So you look at your initial hand and you say, oh, look, I've got three sixes. Well, that's not great because, because there's only four sixes that can be played all told. And there's five in the and deck. And there's five in the deck. Ooh, better get rid of one of those. And then... <laughs> That management I find really, really impressive and cool. Just b finding a way to get through the round without triggering a paradox, I find the most enjoyable bit. The risk-reward system of possibly trying to win some tricks in the interim is something that still eludes me in Cat in the Box Deluxe Edition. I will say this, though. The, uh, the edition that we have is obviously insufficient. I, I had very, I had a hard time, Mark, seeing yeah. the numbers. Now, if there was some way we could make it about 50 times bigger and take up yeah. the whole table, yeah. like it takes up a, a great, you know, you could take it to a cafe or something and play, but that's, you need it on a full-size dining room table. And look, let me tell you something. Uh, I need my reps, bro. And those tokens, I don't think were sufficient for me to bulk up. I, I think they needed to be definitely the size of a, of, a, of a human fist. And if you don't have a giant plushy cat on the table, like why? Is it even, even a game? Is it, are you even playing cat yeah, in the box? Yeah. No. So like this, this $20 easily portable, eminently visually attractive version is an insult. It is a grotesque insult. Now, some people have pointed out <clears throat> that uh, the, the stated impetus for Cat in the Box Del uh, Colossal Edition was for accessibility purposes. Is it maybe if there's a flash flood, you could jump on it and sail <laughs> to safety? No, for the visually impaired one. Oh, gotcha. But uh, quite frankly, I, 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 I think they should have made the expansion material available for the original edition, and I think they should keep the original edition in print because, yes, there are accessibility problems in modern hobby board games, there's also an excess problem in modern hobby board games, and there's definitely a crowdfunding problem in modern hobby board games. Anyway, I enjoyed Cat in the Box Deluxe Edition. Would I recommend it above any one of the many other clever, gimmicky kind of trick takers that are in circulation? Not necessarily. You know, I'd, I'd be happy with one of Paula, Ghosts of Christmas, 
Cat in the Box, slightly different. It's a climbing game. Scout is probably still my favorite. Not really, not really trick-taking, but it's awfully similar in a lot of ways in some of the conventions. Uh, but I'm very happy to play it, and I would happily play it again. I do like it with smaller player count, though, because then at least it's quicker. It's the classic problem with trick-taking games. You need lots of rounds for the luck of the draw to even out, but often by round four or five, I'm starting to lose interest. And or the winner is already transparently obvious. So it, it, it's a weird balancing act. And that is Cat in the Box. Designed by Munayuki Yokouchi and published by Busier Games. We also got just one to the table. Now, this is a very much a code names type game, but unlike code names where two people are sort of the captains or the leaders, and that sort of locks them in the role for quite a while, just one cycles through that much faster. One person is sort of the, the main character, I guess, and everyone writes words that uh, are like a single word that we're trying to get them to guess. And then we all compare our words to each other. And if any of them are the same, then they have to be turned down. And then that person gets to try to guess the word with the words that are remaining. And then you go on to the next player. So it's very quick, very great. Uh, you get a certain number of cards based on the players. No, it's always, it's 13. always 13. You yeah. get 13 cards. And then the book will tell you how you did. The book will neg you aggressively. I love the passive-aggressive, uh, pejorative, demeaning characterizations of the book. I always can't help but imagine it in some sort of incredibly dismissive tone. It's like, oh, you did average. Can you do better? Damn, you just won. Yeah, it's marvelous. I adore just one. I have one burning question, though, Walker. Just one. How come your markers are still lovely and vibrant, and mine are desiccated Feeble things that are illegible but still stain things indelibly. It's because I have the key mark. To, What's that? To keep dry erase markers fresh. What's that? You stuff the bag full of silica packets. <laughs> That's a lie. Do not do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I. It's it's a serious problem. If I could, if look, if there were a a brand of dry erase marker that I knew was of sufficient quality that it would just never run out, I would buy a good set. Just for the sake of of you know cycling it through. Did I say this? Did I say this on the podcast, or was it on the on, on the pledge of indifference? You need, we need like a razor club for dry erase markers. <laughs> yeah, you said that a pledge of indifference. Yeah, so you, you know a you, monthly you subscription. Yeah, and every, every month that's you, a bit get, excessive. You'll get like three dry erase markers. I don't think. Well, no. To your house. I <laughs> I need more than three now, and I'm going to need less than three after I stock up. Right? It's it, that's not. I went through a lot of dry erase markers when I was a professor. I would steal them from classrooms. <laughs> Because that was the one thing that was not routinely available in the in the supply cupboard, but I how I I don't know how. Well, your copy of just one is significantly younger than mine, but if I could get us, I'm not the kind of guy who has the one high quality poker chip set or high quality metal coins or whatever, and just transplants them between games. I find that a bit of a hassle, but I would consider doing that for dry erase markers if I were confident that they too would not dry out for green team wins for just one for all those 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 kinds of games. Uh, Agreed. This is a petty complaint, but it's mine. So there you go. So that is just one. And just one, yeah, you can still do that clever. I was, I've been playing on Board Game Arena. After we played it that day, I opened up a game to all the listeners. And so we have a bunch of people in a game of just one. And I, and I, and I like it's just, I think it's just as clever as uh, code names because you can sort of infer what other words people are going to guess. Yes. And you can guess a word that has nothing to do with the actual word, but will tie in those other words and help hone, I think help hone that in as long as they sort of 
get the vibe of it. They might look at your right. word and it might throw them off. You might do the opposite, but I really feel as though that could be part of the strategy. Well, the biggest tragedy in a game of just one, I find, is less when two people have the same clue. The bigger tragedy is when everybody gets a clue through, but they do one of two errors. Number one, they're all on board with the fundamental idea, but not enough precision. So you don't know whether it's marriage or wedding or ceremony. Like you get, you get the gist, like all the, all the bits are there, but yeah, you can't get to the precision. Like we had that problem in our last game with, with temple and the person guessed church. It's like, well, kind of, but because we all got to place of worship, religious place, but no specification for temple specifically. When I had considered uh, having some kind of clue with respect to architecture, right? I But I, I ruled that out. I'm like, no, no, no. Then, of course, there's the opposite problem, right? If you only go for the specifics and nobody gets to the general idea, then the, then the, the, the clue receiving person is probably going to be at a loss. So, for example, if for temple, some, we'd all done like marble, columns, things like that, then be like, Ancient Greece? Acropolis? Who knows, right? Anyway, still fascinating. That's the kind of double think you have to engage in. Sometimes over the course of the game, you get a little bit of a vibe for what other people are apt to clue into. You have to tailor for people's experiences and expectations, so it helps if you know everybody. But I, I don't know if I'd put it on the same level as code names. I mean, structurally, I agree with you that it is preferable in that, and I've said this before, everybody gets to guess and everyone gets to give clues. That I prefer. But there's something about the fundamental structure of code names, whereby it's the numeracy, being able to go back and get earlier problems about the the the, the, the quality of connection that you can sometimes make between different words as a clue giver. I've seen more room for truly clever and inventive play in code names, I think, than in just one, which is not a knock on just one, like I say. But that is just one designed by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sauter, published by Repo Production. I was asked to bring Deception Murder in Hong Kong to the table. This is designed by Toby Ho and put out by Jolly Thinkers. And this is a great sort of hidden deduction game. So here's the lineage, as I see it. First, there was Dixit. Then that kind of evolved into the co-op version of Dixit, which is Mysterium, which is also another game I'd like to get to the table again soon. I love Mysterium. Well, the original version, uh, Tayamichi de Mostval, I... Uh, the, uh, the the later one with guessing and voting, uh, not a big fan. And I also find the artwork a bit strange. And then there was Deception Murder in Hong Kong, which looks at Mysterium and says, well, what if we put social deduction and traitor elements into that game? So you have two rows of sort of clues. Sometimes one row is usually sort of like a murder weapon type thing. And the other one is sort of like a piece of evidence, I guess you could say. And everyone closes their eyes. The forensic investigator that's not allowed to talk ever, uh, except at this particular moment, tells the, just the murderer <laughs> to open their eyes, and the murderer is going to point to one of their pieces of evidence and one of their murder weapons, and then close their eyes, and then everyone opens their eyes, and then the forensic scientist s starts giving clues with these obscure sort of cards like, you know, it'll be the place and the how violent the murder was and what kind of Sixth building. Sense. It, yeah. And and so then once they start placing these cubes, uh, clues, then everyone starts talking and, and pointing out and says, well, it was violent. So it could be the machete or the bowling ball or, you know, everyone's got these all these weird, wacky things in front of them. And, and you sort of try to limit out what people have and 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 zone in on one particular person. I think 
Deception Murder in Hong Kong is a fabulous social experience. I think it is very much in that league of Archaeo Society slash Ethnos of you can pull this out amongst any group of people, gamers, non-gamers, hobbyists, non-hobbyists, and I think they're all going to have a good time, even if they don't normally like social deduction, because it's not really social deduction, not really. It's not so much, oh, they said that thing, they must be the murderer. It's more, I'm being given clues that point to their set of cards as being the murderer, so there's that sense. Uh, so the, a lot of people who internalize stress in social deduction games have much more success or much more uh, pleasant experiences in deception, murder, in Hong Kong, in my experience. Uh, that's not to say that it's going to be a hit with everybody, but I've had, I've had universal success introducing deception, murder, in Hong Kong with people. I've played it now dozens of times. There are still some things that I really don't like about deception, murder, in Hong Kong. One of them is the events. We have been playing without the events for years because they're not enjoyable. <laughs> the way that the structure of Deception Murder in Hong Kong is twice over the course of the game, the forensic scientist gets to pivot, pulls a new category of information, removes an old one, and puts it out. And this is desperately needed further clues for the investigators. The events are just unsatisfying and weird. So we just leave them out. And I highly encourage you to do the same for your first game, for your second game, for all your games. The other thing that's unfortunate is there's a certain amount of learned experience. So, for example, I was a murderer, and I chose as my piece of evidence sand. I did this because I remembered that amongst the 24 locations that the forensic investigator can pick as the scene of the crime, beach ain't one of them. Had there been one of them being beach, the game would have lasted five hot seconds because the forensic investigator would have looked at the four available placards for location, saw beach, and said, oh, okay, well, that's a no-brainer, and the jig would have been up. I've seen a number of games end that way. Now, the good news is it doesn't take long to reveal. <laughs> but there's a, there's, I, I don't, it feels a little tricky and unfair and, and unsatisfying when those results happen. That having been said... Deception Murder in Hong Kong has a structural element that I think is a, a, a genuinely a work of subtle genius, especially in the context of social deduction games, any games where there's lots of talking. And that is what we call in our group story time. At the end of every round, every individual is given thirty up to 30 seconds, they don't have to take it, to say whatever they want, and no one is allowed to interrupt them at all. This is completely brilliant because you will find the most shrinking wallflower come to life and offer the most insightful observations that they would never be willing to share or you would never be able to hear in a game of Secret Hitler, uh, The Resistance, Werewolf, you name it. But the fact that it's mandated, some people hear it, it's, it's kind of like the that's not a hat experience. They hear it and they say, well, that, that, that's not really going to add anything. It adds a lot. And I wish other games could do something similar. Like, structurally, it would be awkward to just import it directly, but it's marvelous. I love the fact that Storytime exists. I think it contributes significantly to the approachability of Deception Murder in Hong Kong. And again, structurally, everybody's seen a police procedural. Everybody knows how this works. It's, it's a marvelous package. Again, there are a number of significant gameplay problems, and you can really, as I say, have basically misdeals right from the hop. But other than that, it's great. And the more players you have, it's much like every other hidden role game. There are many different, you know, uh, additional roles, roles, additional yeah. roles that you can add to the game, which are all, as far as I remember, all very good. I haven't played some of the, the, the more obscure ones from the expansion because I don't think I've played like a 12-player game since the expansion was released. You know, the, the fundamental first one that you add is The Witness, which is more or less like Merlin. 
and then you add an accomplice who's more or less like the assassin, more or less. But for those of you who are familiar with the, the Avalon variant of the Resistance. But yeah, the, the alternate roles are fun. They add to the complexity, but they're optional. So again, if you're playing with a group of people that already finds the notion of, wait, I'm a murderer, too complicated, you don't have to worry about it. The only other trick uh, with Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong, and I've had to explain this to people over and over and over again, there are some people like, okay, I'm willing to play, but uh, I just don't make me the murderer. It's like, sorry, the game does not work if somebody is not willing to take one of the roles. You have to be willing to take any role in order for the game to work at all. Uh, but And it's not satisfying having to explain that to people. Uh, certainly not when I keep yelling at them, and I, I don't know why they react badly to that. And that is Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong. <laughs> Let's just keep on that track of, of yelling, Mark. And we're going to talk about a game, full disclosure. This game is sold at my place of business. so But not designed by or published by. Correct. So take anything I say in a grain of salt. I'm not shilling for, for the big box store. Just that we sometimes we get games in and they're all crap. <laughs> and so when this year's... Uh, Christmas collection came in. It was just like, oh, here we go again. Monopoly, Hungry Hungry Hippos. Once again, just a bunch of junk. Are you, wait, are you saying Hungry Hungry Hippos is junk? Yes. Wow. 100%. Wow. And, uh, it's a great toy. Hitting a lever is not a game. <laughs> um, that's how I play top. And then I saw Jenga. Yeah. And I said, oh, just another. And then I said, wait, there's something different about this Jenga. And it said it was Jenga Maker. It's like, oh, what is this all about? And I picked up the box and was immediately sold because this thing is heavy as hell because it is full of wooden giant blocks. And it's very much a of semi, all different colors and shapes. Semi dexterous sort of building. <laughs> semi dexterous. Oh, that's marvelous. Building game. A little bit like UG Tech. So you divide up into teams. One person. Uh, on the team, as I guess, is the leader. And so they flip up the card and they start shouting, or in some cases, shouting at the other person how to build. They have, I'm to, make sorry, sure, I they can't have to make help sure it. they make no hand gestures whatsoever. Yeah, that's tricky. So they have to make sure they say that's flip. The other, that's the thing playing games with you. You cheat in social oh, directing games. You just can't time. help it. I can't help it. I know you don't do it from a place of malice, but no. you just do it reflexively. So you say you have to say something like spin and flip, and so they try to build these structures. And they're not just structures, they're actual, very interesting things. Like I think you're, yeah, they're super cool. Now, some of them are definitely a reach, but uh, the moment you know what they are, it's fun to just see how they rendered a variety. It's, it's kind of like tangrams. They're not tangrams, but it's kind of like tangrams. It's like, okay, well, you're operating with with a small number of shapes and blocks, and you're trying to render various things. The ones on the box are, there's a giraffe, there's a kangaroo, and they're shockingly evocative. They're and really glasses. cool. We had glasses. We, we had, had glasses. tape measure. Had, tape measure was really neat. Yeah. yeah. No one got it, but the moment it said, you know, this is a tape measure, it's like, oh, yeah, that's neat. So, as soon as either the builder thinks it's done or the the shouter thinks it's done, they say crown, they grab the one crown that's on the table, they throw it somewhere on the on the structure, and then the other team checks the card to make sure they built it exactly right. And if they did, they get a point. First three points is the winner. I adored Jenga Maker. I really, really liked it. Now, part of me is wondering if... I turned on the try-hard part of my brain, and I wonder if a set of conventions might break it, right? If you 
stipulate or if a group plays enough where they always understand that there's a certain set of verbal cues to shorthand these things. As it is as a first play where you're fumbling around, it's like, okay, turn it around. No, 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 not around. The other way. No, no, turn it the other, turn it, point it. Yeah, that that was great. Marvelous frustration, marvelous uh, attempts to intuit what someone's describing. I said spin. I did not say flip. I said spin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And as I say, the the little recipes in Jenga Maker are so cute and clever, and the decks are huge. And yet, I have to make make a. I have to mark. I sort of threw. Yeah. Like when we when we look when we are when we open it up first, I like as a joke, I grab the the beginner shapes and I, and I threw the deck you know over my shoulder yeah. like a way like we would never use it. You immediately went to the advanced deck, and having perused the beginner deck a tiny bit, I said, I don't know, the beginner deck looks interesting. And then I looked at the advanced deck and said, oh, oh my God, that, that is advanced. We will, in fact, start with the beginner deck. Yes. The only criticism I have of Jenga Maker, other than, again, the, the, the theoretical concern that maybe... But again, then again, maybe if we settle into some sort of weird meta where we have a whole bunch of verbal shorthands, maybe then you just go to the advanced deck and then maybe even with those, it's challenging enough. I don't know. But my only substantive criticism is there was a recipe we got that was physically unfulfillable because there's a piece that's supposed to balance on one of its sides that will not balance. At least it didn't on my table. And I'm not going to swear that my table is ISO 9000 precisely level, but it's certainly not tilted enough that would make it that way. We all tried to get this piece to balance the way that it was supposed to on the recipe in conjunction with the box that were already there. None of us could, could, could do it. Uh, and that is unfortunate, especially since it could have been solved by simply inverting the piece in a way that still would have been, uh, evocative of the thing that was it was supposed to be a submarine it was supposed to be the propeller of a submarine it looked as propeller like in the other direction than it did in the first direction i suspect this might be because earlier versions of jenga maker appear to have been prototyped with plastic pieces because if you look at the cover the blocks look to be of plastic they look to be a molded plastic of several pieces that were, that were formed together but then you observed that it had the the special logo on the front of the box yeah, like eco-friendly, and there was no plastic in the game whatsoever. Even the the two decks of cards were not wrapped in plastic. No plastic pieces, so maybe they they switched. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's it's to be commended. I mean, the amount of plastic wrap that I've well, it's recyclable here in Kingston. At least you can put it in recycling. That doesn't mean that they actually recycle it. Recycling. Pro this is not me being some sort of truther about recycling. Sometimes recycling programs, they collect the recycling and then they throw it away. Actually, it's that's type two plastic. We only take. No, no, no. You shrink wrap, uh, stretchable plastic. You, you put it with the paper. You put it in a plastic bag and you put it with paper on paper days. I have internalized this, Walker. I know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, you know, good for them for, for, for doing that. And as a mass market game, Jenga Maker is great. I mean, probably not as a mass market approachable experience with me because uh, when I am expected to deliver instructions to somebody in high pressure situations, roughly every second word I utter is a curse word and usually some sort of personal insult. So design information for Jenga Maker. Yep. Published by Hasbro. Period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No artist, no designer. Yep. Nothing. It, it claims it was put out in 2022. Interesting. Yeah. I guess we're meant to Im infer that it's sprung fully grown from the forehead of, of, of its maker. Fully armed and armored, ready to speak. So I wonder, maybe, you know, to get the amount of games that is required to stock... <laughs> Your place of work? The place of work is quite massive, so well, that, I, I can see it. I really like Jenga Maker. 
I, I, I was, I came in with relatively modest expectations, but the, the fundamental gameplay was exactly what I was expecting, but the creativity and visual and conceptual appeal of the designs that you're actually making is very high. And true. And because it's from a main box store, it was thirteen ninety nine Canadian dollars. Yes. Yeah, well, plus a, plus a book. Taxes. Yeah. Yeah. It'll come to 16, 15. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's probably the best $15 of gaming this side of Regicide. Agreed. Lately, anyway. So that's Jenga Maker, designed by someone who does not get credit. Published by Hasbro, that takes all the credit <laughs> in 2022. Finally, for me, got to play a game of My Island. My Island is by Rainer Knizia, published by Cosmos. This is the follow-up to My City, and it has the same exact structure. Namely, it is meant to be a family-style legacy game where you play three session episodes that slowly introduce new rules. And after every game, the people who are in, who win first and second place get points towards the overall campaign victory. And the people who came in third and fourth get minor sticker adapt adaptations to make the game easier for subsequent playings. And then there's some variants too. Later on, there are more stickers. If passes any prologue, we only played the first episode uh, we devoured my city when it came out. We played like six games at a time in some sessions. We, we finished the entire 15 game campaign in the matter of like a week and a half, yeah. which is strange because we were already burned out on campaign games at that point. And the structure of it is basically like how I want roll and rights to be in that you pull a card and that indicates a tile that everyone places on their boards. And for the first couple of tile placements, even in the first uh, episodes where the rules are at their most minimal, you know, you might have a little bit of overlap. And then you look over, you know, turn five and something everyone's doing radically different things. Yeah, this is why I love games like Karuba and Push It to the Limit. I love both those games. I should buy one of those games because I don't have any of them. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the Limit games, there are tons of them. There's Take It to the Limit, there's Take It Easy, there's Push It to the Limit, there's a whole, oh man, yes. any number. And they all do the same sort of thing. You flip over a master tile, everyone finds that tile, everyone and everyone has the same sort of board, but it all sort of breaks apart because people put it in different areas. Love everything about that sort of mechanism. Yes, and uh, it, it was done really, really well in my city. The salient difference between my city and my island is that my island uses hexagons, which, as we know, are the bestagons. Additionally, there's a surprisingly uh, uh, tricky placement requirement that in my island, all the hexes have one of four different colors. In order to place a tile, it has to go next to a hex of existing color. What this does is it forces you, while placing tiles, to think, am I leaving myself open for what the next draw might be? More than once, I had to fail to place a tile, thereby losing a point, which is a big deal. Scores are not differentiated by huge values in a game of my island, precisely because I, I put myself into a corner, not spatially, but in terms of symbols. All my yellows were in corners, and I couldn't place anything next to the yellow. And that's a lesson that you learn the hard way, and even then, it's a surprisingly difficult juggling act. And this is when it's at its most simple. And the, the elaboration is introduced very, very slowly. New scoring conditions, new options, sometimes old scoring options get taken away and replaced by something else. The, the structure I love, the system I adore. It's not super easy for players to come in and jump out. That's, that's a huge problem. That's one of the, I hated everything about it. Okay. It's poop. Because <laughs> all of the games that preceded it, you had to fill the whole grid. <laughs> that's not true. 
It was true. No, you. It was in my city. You all. You always had areas that you could not build into. True. Like the yeah, the trees and stuff. No, yeah. but but this there was there was that was it called the hedge or the heath? The heath. You start with beach. And you then don't. You heath. don't need to build in the heath. Oh, I didn't like that. <laughs> That's the way I play. You have to yeah. meticulously fill everything that. But you as can I said, fill. there's a new requirement. There's a new placement requirement. So the heath is just a little bit of a safety valve, given that your placement is now yeah. for the restricted. My brain didn't like that. Okay, it could not internalize that. Just fill the beach. Get it all filled. Get yeah. the point. Okay. S- speaking seriously, how much did that detract from your enjoyment? Of the Not game? at all. Okay. <laughs> it was great. I, my island is, is. I'm looking forward to all the interesting things. Yeah. My my only come. criticism is that unlike Oathsworn, Oathsworn greatest campaign structure of all time, this really does expect you to play with the same players. For every session. That's one of the reasons why during the, uh, this was during pandemic days where we were very, very seriously limiting our social contact, Walker and I knocked out my city with two player only burning through the campaign. We have very foolishly uh, signed ourselves up for the social obligation of <laughs> finishing my island with the same four people. Uh, now, I'm optimistic that it, that it's not going to feel burdensome and we're actually going to do it. But nonetheless, I, I wish the, the structure were a little bit more flexible. But that having been said... The quality of the game design is such that I'm willing to put up with it. And Huey actually made an interesting observation. He said, you know, I'm surprised you enjoy this as much as you do, given that you don't like spatial puzzles. Yeah, it's just really well done. I normally don't like spatial puzzles. Go figure. And believe it or not, it was designed by Reiner Knizia. Wow, who knew? Talented guy. Those are the games we played this week. And now a brief pause as we pay the bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash so wrong games. And we're back. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker. Yes, Mark. News. 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 Does it matter? Uh, yes. A brief follow-up, a brief overdue follow-up. The people, Walker, the people have spoken. All of the people? All of the people. Ooh. All and every one of the people have been clamoring for further details on this magnetized new edition of Can't Stop. I say magnetized, it's only for the box. Magnetic clasp. And people want to know, which publisher is providing this magical new experience? Well, it is by Tanuki Games. They are the ones who have re-released Can't Stop in a new magnet enclosure box. People are mad for the magnets. And we have acquired a copy ourselves. We are going to be putting it through its paces soon enough. But if you are at all curious about this new edition that Walker talked about a couple weeks ago, it is by Tanuki Games. A Tanuki, uh, my understanding, is a fictional creature that can turn itself into stone. This I learned in a great documentary called Super Mario Brothers 3. Interesting. I failed to talk about Micro Macro Showdown last week, Mark. I don't know why it, it fell. It was on there, but I didn't talk about it. Yet another Micro Macro game. 
Micro Macro is a game where it's a giant black and white cartoony type city where everyone dies. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or sometimes there's slightly more petty larceny. And so it's this weird sort of time skippy map where you can sort of follow the suspects and the murder victim and figure out why they got murdered and where they got murdered and where their body was dragged to. And it comes with these decks of cases and you sort of have to where's Waldo your way through these giant maps. It is simply wonderful. That is micro macro more of it. Barrage is one of our favorite Euro games of the past five years. And there are going to be new maps. There's a Kickstarter up now called Barrage New Lands. This is by the original designers Tommaso Batista and Simone Luciani, and sadly with the original publishers of Cross Cranier Creations, who have a checkered at best history with Kickstarter fulfillment and components in general. But I am a big fan of Barrage, and I'm a big fan of additional components for Barrage, and I will be taking a serious look at Barrage New Lands, currently on Kickstarter. So Michael Keller and Andreas Odendahl designed Lagrangia. They are teaming up with Uwe Rosenberg to put out a game called Planta Nubo. Looks very interesting. Take a look at it. It's on Board Game Geek right now. Looking forward to getting more information. Walker, I have a concern. And the concern is that despite the fact that we are not widely taken seriously in board gaming circles, nor what? should we. Nor should we. That's not my concern. My concern is that you have basically salted the earth for Zombabees, and now no publisher is willing to touch it. And merely by virtue of you having asserted the idea and therefore clearly having some sort of dibs. I say this because there have been so many games about bees, and none of them are willing to touch Zombabees. I don't know that it's going to happen. So the latest instance of this is Apiary by Stonemaier Games. These are far future bees. These are sapient bees. Uh, and there are going to be a variety of different kinds of sci-fi future bees. None of them, though, will be zombie bees. That's, and I'm starting to, I'm starting to think, shame. I'm starting to think that it might not happen. And I'm starting to think it might be our fault. It could be. Maybe there'll be an expansion. We can hope. It's true. Finally, for me, also on crowdfunding on Kickstarter is Battlecrest Year Two. Battlecrest Year Two, very much like Battlecrest Year One, is being published by Button Shy Games. And like before, and as I did, you can just purchase the print-and-play version, and since Button-Shy games tend to just be a couple of sheets of cards, then you're not looking into very serious crafting commitments at all. Uh, I've tried Battlecrest. It's quite neat. I think it would benefit from an additional stage. That's where a lot of the variety comes in. Every character has their own unique uh, action cards, but in addition, the stage plays a considerable influence on what actions are available to each character. So I'm looking forward to more content. I'm definitely going to be pledging, and I look forward to more Battlecrest. This is Battlecrest Year 2, currently on Kickstarter. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. And on to the topic of the week. Ending the game early. I had a number of uh, very, very inappropriate jokes possible. One of them was about abandonment issues. That that could kind of hit the wrong way. Any number of off-color jokes involving the word premature. Yikes. And uh, then there's also the fact that to uh, cut something short is uh, also uh, sometimes a code word for a hot-button political issue, and I'm not going to be addressing that on the air anytime soon. So, yes, ending games early. This is all because there was two games, like we talked about, The Witcher and My Father's Work, both games that ended prematurely. Yes. So, in My Father's Work, it was not voluntary. <laughs> it was force majeure, as we would say in the insurance industry. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've 
I've definitely, as I said, I've had PC games and prematurely because of force majeure like that. But I suppose it's only a matter of time before an app did that. I've had battery failure sometimes do it, or at least close to. So we posted this question to our Discord, and we got great response. So we'll have a lot of examples, or at least I have a lot of examples. So, well, let's let's go a little bit into more detail as to why we ended The Witcher. Because the scenario, I think, was was very particular. We don't normally do this, even if we think the game is over long, which The Witcher definitely was. So there's two ways to get victory conditions, and that's one study for a point or kill a monster for a point. And you can't study to win. Right. Largely under the principle of anticlimax, I think. So it was all down to all of us being at four of the five points, and now we're it was all down to uh us having to kill a monster. Yes. And so I went out to do my best and, you know, spent yet another five minutes going through, <laughs> you know, the the card combat only to just fail at the end. Yes. I believe it was only the second failure that we'd experienced thus far. And I think it's largely because you went after a level three monster when there was a level two monster on the board. And as it happened, I was next in play order. I was in position to go hunt a level two monster. And if I didn't do it, then the person to my left was going to do it. And we were all just sitting there. We didn't have a hard out. This wasn't a scheduling issue. We were just sitting there thinking, what's the point? Yes. <laughs> I no, you, no one cared if they won. Yeah. And... If I had failed, like, first of all, we suspected that killing the level two was mostly a fait accompli, but even if it weren't, it would not be as a result of any sort of stunning decision that I had failed to make. And if the person to my left didn't finish them off and then you finished off another monster on your turn, that probably wouldn't be their fault either. So at that point, who cares? And so we... Yeah, it wasn't like an interesting combo that you've created. Right. It wasn't like a neat engine. It was just, like you said, your deck does what it does. Yeah. And win. Right. Now, again, but here, here's a question, though. Here, here's something that I've been thinking about on and off for years. I've raised it on the podcast, but I think this is a good venue for digging into it a little bit deeper. In a perfect world, let's set aside the fact that we have a job, right? Well, let's imagine a blissful environment where I'm still unemployed, happily retired, and you merely uh, operate as mayor of Steel Space, all right? In an ideal world, would we, at around an hour and a half, Looked left, looked right, and said, why don't we just stop? <laughs> uh, maybe. I think so. Only because if if that was the scenario, we would have a lot less game time. And therefore, those few hours that we did have would be more precious. And if we felt as though they were being wasted and we could do something else quickly, then I think we might do that. Yeah, I mean, part of me acknowledges that sometimes... Games can rally in the second half, either because in, in the case of The Witcher, the old world, it would have been, this is a, this is a hypothetical, this is a counterfactual, if the game had rallied in the second half, which it didn't, it would be because our deck had now changed to the point where we were able to do more interesting stuff. But that's not how the deck progression works in The Witcher Old World. There are just two kinds of icons, more or less. Do you know why it doesn't do And you just generate more. Why? Because the deck's not graduated. <laughs> Surprised you didn't mention it. Yeah, why didn't you mention that during the actual review? <laughs> well, no, it's just none of the cards did anything really interesting. Like, there were better and worse cards, absolutely, and it was better to get the good cards, and sometimes you got to be impressed by the combo you pulled off. But at the end of the day, 
an impressive combo did seven damage and four shield instead of a crappy combo doing one damage and one shield, right? That That's not necessarily interesting in terms of development of your deck in and of itself. Certainly not enough to warrant, like, an, an additional hour and a half of, of playing through things. Don't forget then the arbitrary monster card that's picked, and then you do any damage from one to seven. Yes, more or less. Uh, and and the monsters only uh, differ from each other primarily in terms of the number of hit points they have. That's the chief difference. So part of me thinks that in an ideal world, regardless of how much spare time we have, if we're not obligated to give the game more of a fair shake, if we're any amount of time in the game, and we, being somewhat somewhat familiar with hobby gaming, have a reason to believe that the game is not going to rally that we'd be willing to pull the trigger at almost any juncture, but we don't. Like, that's just not thing. That's not a thing that people often do. It happens slightly more often in highly competitive games like chess, right? Like chess games end in concession all the time. And it happens more often in historical war games. But it doesn't happen very often, period. True, but there is a perceived investment. There is, we took the time to get together, we took the time to set up. Someone has taken a substantial time of reading the rule book and presenting it and teaching it to everyone. Sure. So now we are invested in this game. I have three words for you. Sunk cost fallacy. True. Like, that's not that's not a reason to spend good time after bad. Like, all those things we did, learning the rules, setting up all those things, doing the rules explanation, was to give the game a shake. And if we if if we're confident now, sometimes we'd be wrong. Obviously, there's the possibility of false positives. And there's also I just added in quickly. There's Sorry. also the price that was paid for the game. Also, sunk cost. I, I I agree. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm long, uh, that 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 I think I'm going to start mid- advocating in favor of this universe that I'm positing. I'm just wondering if, in an ideal world, that's that's what it'd be. It's just I've talked a lot about the social conventions of a game. And the social conventions of a game are such that you play it to completion. Damn it. You finish the thing. And there's also not being fully sold on the fact that everyone is not enjoying it. Right? Yeah. Because some people act outraged but are actually, you know, still enjoying it. <laughs> it's you true. Know, they're frustrated, but they, they enjoy frustration, but they still outwardly show yep. negative frustration. So you, you sort of don't want to put the seed in their head that you're not having fun because then that That's a good point. affect their game as well. So it's maybe... true. It's tough. I, I'm also thinking specifically, as the number of players shrinks, I again think that the willingness to, to, to just call it should go up. I've had a number of experiences where... And you're right. Maybe I shouldn't have raised it in the first place. The other, pl- I'm just, ha- I'm having a terrible time, largely because I think the other player is having a terrible time. They're like, "Do you want to keep going?" And the answer is, "Yes, we're gonna finish this. I am having fun." It's like, <laughs> "Yo, whatever you say, buddy. Let's go and keep doing this." And then the, then you play out the rest in like chilling, awkward. So it, it's rough. Yeah, two player game is a whole different beast, right? Because. Because in a lot of times in a two-player game, someone is definitely winning usually. Yeah. And so it might, you know, you can sort of see the writing in the sand. And if yep. the other person also sort of admits that they have been beaten, then yeah. sometimes it's just best to call it and either start again or play something else. And again, in a lot of historical concepts, at least in some of the good ones, the victory conditions are sufficiently transparent. And in a lot of zero-sum games, many of which are historical concepts, you know... 
they're, they're often rich get richer problems and compounding. And it's like, you know, if you're in hour two of a potentially six hour two player game and it's clear you're done messed up, you might as well call it, especially since for those historical concept gamers that like to see historical counterfactuals, you know, they've already seen what they needed to see. If, if you royally mess up your deployment in the, the, the second op or what, or what have you. So I understand why it's more prevalent in some sub, sub, sub groups than others, but I'm usually not that kind of person. Cause I usually have some sort of moral victory that I'm going for. It's true. I, and I think it does you credit Go into more detail about what that looks well, like. I just mean like, so, so in the case of like a war, it's like, I'd, I'd have a really cool, like, look at this cavalry unit. This is my favorite <laughs> cavalry unit. And I, I've spent the whole game getting it. To yeah. a certain position. Yep. I know I'm losing, but I'm gonna still do that one charge yep. that I've set up. Or I've I've dedicated myself to a certain strategy in in like look, I've I look, there's this little sort of thing I can manipulate that's gonna get me money. And that money is direct victory points. And it doesn't seem to be scaling like everyone's else's little engine that they yep. made. But I wanna see where this goes. <laughs> right. So that kind of thing. So recently, in terms of other experiences I've had personally of games ending prematurely, uh, there have been a number of, of, of not quite game ending prematurely. Like people, they, they're kind of running late, so they finish all their turns and then they say, I'm sorry, you guys handle the scoring and then they book it. That's okay. Like, especially if there's exigencies, I understand. There have been people who have had to book it in the middle of a rules explanation. So at worst, all you had to do was change the, the setup. That's fine, too. They've had to book it. It has nothing to do with the game is (laughs) way heavier than they thought it was. And after you've, you know, been through the rules a bit, they're like, oh, this is way over my head. No, I wish that happened more often. Instead, you get the opposite problem where it's like, is this okay? Would you rather play something else? Like, no, 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 no. Despite the fact that I've clearly internalized none of this explanation, I'm going to insist that we continue through this death march of a charade to its conclusion. I wish more people would be willing to be vocal about stuff like that. No. But I recently, in the past couple of years, nobody listens to the show and none of our personal friends. Somebody in the middle of a game, the literal middle of it, look down at their watch and say, oh, I've got to go, and then leave. Yeah, I have it here. It's Biffer, Big Man Biff. You know, the the ace man, McBiffster. He's got to get to the bar, right? He's got the women waiting for him. <laughs> I'm sorry, unfamiliar. Sorry, 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 everyone. I got I to gotta go. I'm unfamiliar with the Big Man Biffster. And if the game had been going over long, that would have been one thing. If the game had been long in long period, but this was halfway through like a 60-minute a game. Just left. Then there's that awkward silence where you look at all the other people's like, so so what do we what do we do do now? And you try to figure out if you can kind of MacGyver a dealing out situation. Ugh. Yeah, a lot of the examples we had were in 18xx games where apparently ah, yes. the player count is very locked in. Once yes. you start a game at a certain player count, uh, trying to fix it or continue when one person has decided not to is, is next to impossible, apparently. Well, there is, an, uh, there is an interesting sort of shift that happens over the course of some games of 18xx. And that's where you're like, okay, we're all, we're all settled in, right? We're going to do the rest by the spreadsheet. And then what you do is you stop playing the game as a board game, and it just shifts to, okay, we're just going to extrapolate out with the spreadsheet for what the operating rounds are going to look like, because the board situation is more or less settled. Can we, can we, like, just pause the podcast right now so we can go play? That that sounds so exciting. <laughs> I, I, I need to go I appreciate that right it. Now. No, no, no. Oh. It's the, the, what has been, what, what there is to do on the board has been done. The investments are set. 
we know what's going to happen, so we just extrapolate out from the earned interest and, and all the other things. Walker, Walker, look, between you and me, I'm, I've muted, I've muted the podcast, okay? I'm, do I'm not, vibrating. Do not poke the train gamers. Oh, sorry. They come, and they come for me. <laughs> Doesn't matter who says it, they come after me. Let the record reflect. I was standing up for the train game community. It was Walker. Michael Walker. It's 18XX. X means excellent and exceptional. Yes. <laughs> no, the XX means that despite the fact that all these games are very historically situated, the train gamers do not care at all about the historical context. It's like the weird, it's strange. You have the historical consim gamers and the train gamers, and in some ways they're very similar, and in some ways they are diametrically opposed in terms of interest. It's wild. Great. Now I, I, that's going to be interpreted as a slight yep. on the train gamers. See, you dragged yeah. me down with you. I know, it's great. Ugh. So what are some of the examples in your history of 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 games ending prematurely? Well, there's there's the I have it written here as the the silent quit into the night quit right so it's slowly <laughs> the quiet quitting and, that, and that's more of the more of the campaign right we've sure had, we've had you know where good point where no one brings it up anymore <laughs> King the death monster everything's great we're enjoying it and then and then just slowly drifts off into the nothingness and no one ever brings it up again well that reminds me though what constitutes the end of something. Uh, is sometimes a little bit more complicated than we might imagine. I was actually talking about this with somebody recently. So one of my favorite video games of all time is Spec Ops The Line. Spec Ops The Line did a, is a very, very interesting take on Heart of Darkness. It does some interesting things with moral agency. It has some very interesting statements about war. It does a lot of cool things with narrative. The gameplay is I, but it's mostly about the narrative. And there's this one scene early in the game, about a third of the way into the game, I guess, chronologically, that is extremely polarizing and has caused a number of players to rage quit and just not go back. And the director of the game has said, that's okay. That's the end of the game for them. Right? That, that is not an incomplete game. They finished it. Right? Finished doesn't necessarily have to mean get to the credits. I've been actually replaying Hades. And Hades as well kind of messes with your expectation of what finished is. When I played through Hades the first time, for me the game was finished when I reunited Orpheus and Eurydice. That was finished for me. That's what I wanted to do. And so we take for granted in the context of video games, play to the credits. But even Hades subverts that to a large extent. In a movie, you, you, you play to the credits. So the game, you play to the final scoring. And I think, again, hearkening back to my wishing for a more perfect world, sometimes I don't think that has to be. Like, we finished our campaign of Kingdom Death Monster. It's done. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Granted, we didn't know that the end was the end, but it ended. And that's fine. And I kind of have fond memories about it, you know, large tits and all. But that's it. It happened. You don't seem to agree. No, I do agree. No, okay. I, I, it, it's, a, it's a good way to look at it, for sure. <laughs> you, that sounds like you're just humoring well, me. Well, not, not humoring you, but I mean, it, sometimes, you know, you lament about not completing. Like, when you actually do fully complete a campaign, there is a sort of sense of accomplishment. Right. So you, you fundamentally disagree. You don't think we fully completed our campaign of Kingdom. My, I am positing oh, no, I, that I, we fully completed it. I, I like your analogy. Okay. I okay. like your example. Okay. And, and now I will feel better about it. Okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Same thing with Gloomhaven. We didn't finish the first Gloomhaven. No. But Something. we did. We did finish. Our campaign was concluded. It's true. And that's fine. I, I, well, I won't go into it, but I just feel as though they, that's too much. Too many games. Yeah, yeah. They cannot expect anyone to play that many games. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> A lot of uh, Kudos to those who did. Yeah. No, look, I, 
so in a different in a different scenario, again, if we didn't have this job, our attitude towards gaming might well be different. But as it is, some go too long. It's true, and and so we can go back to just single games, and that is one of the other main reasons games get ended early because they're just going on too long. Yes, and we've had that times, and we don't just say you know okay, let's just stop. Usually, we say okay, we're going to play, we're going to finish this turn, and we're going to stop after that. So sometimes, sometimes when it's obvious someone's going to win, either some people had a misstart or didn't completely understand the rules, and some person is so far ahead that sometimes people feel as though it's not advantageous to continue. I only agree in context where, again, there's a serious rich-get-richer problem, or in games where the losers have their options so seriously constrained. It's one of the great things about modern Euro games, right? You can be in last place, but you still get to do your action cards. You still get to do your actions. You still get to buy all the stuff and play with some of the toys. Yeah, that's what I mean. If I enjoy moving the gears, then I want to keep moving the gears. I want to see how the gears move, how far they'll move. Yep. And and so next time I play, then I either A, won't make the mistake, or know know, how I want to move those gears. Yeah. I'm actually glad that the structure of modern hobbyist games is such like that. And we don't play with people who think that it is pointless to keep playing if they're not going to win. Because there's a certain mindset, even with the structure of the modern hobby game, where you still have almost all the levers available to you, even if you're eating it badly. Uh, But there are some people who's like, I'm eating it badly. There's no point in continuing. That is not a context in which I think it would be appropriate to suggest ending the game. If it's clear no one's enjoying themselves, that's one thing. But if the only reason why you end the game is because you think you have no chance of winning, I wonder why you're playing games in the first place. Agreed. And then there's what I call, the, it's called the quick reset. So sometimes these can be on purpose, right? Where the game is either A, so complicated, or it has some very convoluted concepts, right? And where people, you don't think people will understand it until they've gone through a whole round. So you play like sort of a pretend round. Or where games are very random and you got hit with a very weird strain of mm. random cards right off the beginning. It's like, well, this is not really reflective of what uh, a, a game would should really develop in the first turn. So why don't we just do a, a quick reset? You can see where, you know, this and this happens. So let's just restart again and, and, and re-go. Or if a fundamental rule was catastrophically misinterpreted and it's early in the game, sometimes I think it makes more sense Rather than have the question of, well, do we play wrong going forward? Do we, do we try to correct? It's like sometimes it just makes more sense. Nah, 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 let's just undo those turns and start over. Next one up I have written in as the room cap, which is <laughs> you were just slightly a little too eager. You thought, you know, we can get this three-hour game in in 45 <laughs> minutes. The announcement goes across the question, the hall will be closing in 30 minutes. It's like, oh, TI4, we can do this. <laughs> So, yes, so you you really didn't judge your time well, and the room's closing, and it's time to to stop your game. Or you can be like the listener and try to carry the board of Gaia Project to another room. <laughs> That's ambition. Did not work. Gaia Project. Yeah. It, there's no it, board. There's no board. There's tiles. There's maybe they, tiles. Maybe they taught the, 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 the table cloth very tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, either way, it didn't work. Okay. I can imagine. But I mean. Non-recoverable. Kudos for that ambition. Yeah. Well, honestly, again, talking about this, this, this touches on issues of, of, of competition. Like those games of TI4 or whatever, like either because it was too ambitious or you, you didn't get a quick enough start and the game ends. Seldom do I hear in context people like that saying, oh. I just really wish I could have figured out who would have won. 
that to me is a red flag. It's just like, oh, I would have liked to have seen how the next turn developed, or I really would have liked to get that war sun out, or whatever. Just to, yeah, to... we were really gauging up for that big conflict. Yeah, we had be able to. Yeah, instead of oh, but now I'm never gonna know who would have won. It's like, Ugh. okay, buddy, I'll not see you tomorrow. <laughs> so our next one we've already talked about. Some or not all are having fun. Again, I wish the threat. I think people should. Take less serious, lower the threshold for suggesting that, you, like, not, some people, if you say, do, do we just want to call it? Like, you suggest you just shoot a priest in the face. But, like, I, I see why that happens. You can have secret bid cards, right? Because, <laughs> it, I'm just saying, like, if you don't want to, like, put a damper on the But whole then somebody table. has to suggest taking the boat. That's the problem. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. But you could, you could make it standard for every game. Okay, after, oh, after the first turn. You know, that's everyone put in your card. Halfway mark, though. Like, or like, halfway or something. Some kind of half. Oh, that's fascinating. Walker, you're really selling this idea. And that way, it's it's secret, and you just sort of flip up the cards. Well, three people out of the four want to stop. Yeah. We're done. Wow. I'd say in a four-player game, though, I think two would be enough. Well, yeah, We could have this discussion. With example, yeah. Wow. Do you know what we need? We need a gaming constitution. Oh, but no, 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 no. We need a, well, we need an unwritten gaming constitution. For those of you that know about constitutional history, the unwritten constitutions are a thing. Canada used to have one until 1982. Uh, Great Britain used to have one until uh, uh, more recently than that. Because I don't like written, but I do like unwritten constitutions. But we could nonetheless write down the strictures of this photo. Oh, wow. Okay, now I I have stuff to think about. You've blown my mind, Walker. Good stuff. Next one I have is just not in the mood for that game. Right? You like a game. And someone suggests it, and but once it, you get started, it starts up, and you're just like, okay, well, maybe I'm a little more tired than I thought I was, <laughs> or you know, this is the end of the week, and it's like, okay, well, I do like this game, but now that now that it's all out, and I realize, oh yeah, it is a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> or one of the, the example that was sort of in the discussion was somebody uses a strategy that makes the game unfun. Mm. I believe the exact uh, example was uh, Imperial, the the card game, the one where, is it called Imperium? Imperial, all, you know, it has now like 32 different sieves that you play the card and the app does the score. Oh, yes. Imperium Classics and Imperium Classics. I think that was the example where someone, the strategy for the one faction was to bog the other player's deck down. Uh, With unrest, yeah. So it was just sort of like, uh, right. So yeah, that, yeah. Not in the mood for that type of strategy being used against you. Yeah, reasonable. In cases like that, again, I think an appropriate response is concession. Again, like suggesting that you end prematurely is is basically concession is the the purest form of that. And in a two player game, again, some people react very very violently to the to the proposal of concession. But I think we should celebrate <laughs> the freely offered concession. Uh, it's like, congratulations, you win. Like, I think I with the writings on the wall, uh, we can usually, though, concessions are like, we can play it out if you want to, but I think we know how this is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's what we already talked about in two-player games. That's the next point, conceding yeah. in a two-player game. We already talked about the next one, running my engine until it's out of gas, just that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I, you know, I, I'd like to see, I know I'm losing, but I just want to see how this, this goes. Absolutely. And then another point was, Maybe this is a, for a lot of reasons why board games like to obscure the game state and, yes. and hide victory points is to keep everyone's sort of attention and or enjoyment of the game going so you don't feel as though you're totally out of it and that kind of thing. Yes, 
And that works unless and until you have to start making intelligent decisions about who to target your aggression. Exactly. And then sometimes you get into the whining. Lots of whining. Lots of whining. And then there's the fake whining, which is like the strategy of fake whining. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That makes me want to whine in sincerity. <laughs> All right. Convince that sometimes people are just convinced that they've lost. And you look at the game state and it's like, well, no. You just haven't grasped how the game will evolve later on in, in, in later turns. Yeah, but I mean, if someone's sincerely not feeling it, I don't know that the correct response is to no. try to argue them oh, into no, feeling it. No, 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 I'm not, I didn't, I'm just saying, I'm, I didn't mean as though you, you said that, I wouldn't say that out ah, okay. loud. Okay. I just said you look down and you, say, you think to yourself, that's not the way. I see, I, I see. I, I, it's going to turn, but there's no way you're going to convince them otherwise, so yeah. Uh, you already talked about getting a rule wrong. Mm-hmm. When one player is just taking too long. <sighs> I, I've spent years, decades even at this point, talking about and thinking about recourses and responses to players that are taking too long. I have yet to find one. I Because I, I, the player taking too long doesn't want to disengage with the game. That's part of the problem. They're engaging with the game too much. Not only too much, it just seems they're engaging with it at the wrong times. No, no, of course. When, but... when, when I get upset about it is when yes. the, the round is taking, you know, a little bit long and then it comes to their turn and they act as though yes. they haven't been looking at the game state the whole time. But there's no way you're going to get them to agree that the, like, they're the problem. They're not going to uh, participate in the solution, in my experience. Like, I understand that sometimes the game state Changes. Changes, but you can have an A or a B or a, you yeah. know, modify your plan. I know, I know. No, I just, I hear you. That is a possible way, theoretically, that you could deal with players taking too long. I, again, just don't see a way to deal with players taking too long other than not playing with them, which is a shame. So in response to people that are thinking that they are losing, someone has made a five-point list that maybe people should consider when you think you're totally out of it and you've lost. Okay. Number one, you might be wrong. Number two, you might lose, but you can learn more about the end game, which you might not otherwise see. So you can see how the actual final scoring works and, and stuff like right. that. It can be fun to let your opponent to complete their master stroke, but requires humility and empathy. Mm, well put. If the choice is either to keep playing versus pack up and be done for the night, most times I'd rather keep playing. So I guess. Yeah, know, but often that's the false choice. Sometimes it's, it's, it's pack up and do something else. True. But they're just saying yeah. that there's not, it's like so close to the end. Sure. Completing a personal goal or reaching a, a certain position may still be satisfying, even if it's not winning, which is very much how I yep, play. It's the Walker games. philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And more of the campaign story may be revealed. So if you're playing some sort of system and it has like story elements and you can, you know, advance the story a bit longer or find out why you've been doing all these things if you just, you know, do a couple more steps of the game. That is a good list of reasons to keep tracking. Yeah, there's lots of good reasons to continue. Part of me just yearns for that simpler universe where, but that voting system worker, I'm going to think about that. 99% chance it won't result in anything, but food for thought. And that's going to do it for this week. For So Very Wrong About Games, thank you very, very much for joining us. We really appreciate your having decided to spend some time with us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace!
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.